So on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about building cultural counterpower and the cultural infrastructures necessary to shift the way institutions that hold cultural space actually function. Why is this important? Well, I think we all agree that there are many things that we want to change about the way the world works and the way that society functions. And one of the primary ways I see of doing this is of engaging with culture. Why? Because great art, to me, changes the way that I see the world. And if I can change the way I see the world through an experience of culture, it opens my imagination to perhaps ways in which I might live differently, ways in which I might encounter society and actually change it. So to me, cultural space is important because it models or provides a zone in which to experiment to make that change. Hi, I'm Laura Rykovich, and welcome to Cultural Counterpower, my new podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Here's what to expect from this podcast. I'll be broadcasting monthly about building counter-narratives that reflect the innate cultural power of humans, all of us, as an antidote to totalitarianism, patriarchy, and racialized capitalism. Sometimes I'll invite guests to join me, and other times I'll be speaking directly to you as I am today. But the most important thing is that you share your thinking with me, that you drop comments, let me know what you think, share your questions. I'm here, I'm interested. First things first, I want to acknowledge the Lenape lands on which I sit today broadcasting to you. The Lenape people have stewarded this landscape since time immemorial and continue to do so today, and I'm privileged to live here, to work here, and to raise a family here. I'm also broadcasting from the Francis Kite Club, which is a new bar, cultural space, activist space that I've been collaborating with friends and co-conspirators to make a place for everybody to be together, to share thinking, to share ideas. So please join us, stop by uh, here in the East Village, 40 Avenue C, anytime, join us. What is cultural counterpower? Well, cultural counterpower is the thing that allows us to imagine living differently. It's the thing that allows us to think more broadly outside of our field of vision as it's currently defined by society. It's not necessarily what happens in museums. It happens in our minds, in our imaginations, and in the streets, as well as being the spaces that artists construct for us to imagine things differently. And as long as we're talking about cultural counterpower, I should probably tell you what I am imagining as culture. <laughs> and I guess the real answer is, Culture is everything, and it's also very specific things. So when I think about culture, I think about getting together and talking over a beer, but I also think about going to a museum and seeing an exhibition. I also think of going to hear a band play or going to the symphony. Um, culture is so many things, but I think one of the things that I struggle with the most is kind of describing culture not just as the art that all of us produce or the music or the sound or the, 
uh, images or the experiences that are produced through kind of uh, typical cultural institutions or typical cultural experiences, but also the stuff we do each individually every day that has been declassified as culture, I think, in the kind of over-categorization of our worlds. And what I really think is that we are building culture together, which is who we are and how we live, by making the music, the art, the thinking, the sharing that happens perhaps in these more specialized spaces, um, but that also happens in our own homes when we cook dinner, when we sit down together with family and friends and share that dinner. So culture is many, many things to me, but I think for this podcast, um, I'm, I'm really talking about the way that culture is produced in terms of the institutions that allow that allow culture to be built. The current media landscape plays a very particular role in how imaginations are narrowed. It only gives us a certain bandwidth to, to think of how change might occur. And so what I want to do is take culture's key role in undoing these conditions as a starting point for our conversations. So this podcast is going to be devoted to how we can build cultural counterpower to drive larger societal change. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by liberating culture from its current confines. And I've written about this a great deal. I've thought about it a great deal. I've lived it a great deal through my experiences in the cultural sector. And I wrote a book called Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest that really delves into um, what this looks like. Well, how does this play out in cultural space? So I want to talk a little bit about what I learned from writing this book, because of course you can go and read the book if you want to get to take the deep dive. But I learned a number of things, and I think those are important to this podcast. And one is that change must happen within cultural space in the sense of what, what is not only what is programmed, but how it is programmed. Not only what happens operationally, but how the operations are made to happen. Because the biases of society, of course, are embedded in the institution in the way it's set up. Not just what kinds of art is on view, but in fact, how that art is commissioned, who is commissioning it, what people are talking about, the priorities that are made within that cultural space to say, well, we want to do this first, or that's how we select an artist. This is how we're going to curate this exhibition. Even who's going to clean the bathrooms? How do we organize for that? You know, what are these, what are these fundamental things that we do every day? Who unlocks the front doors? How much are they paid? Do they get health insurance? You know, all of these questions are really important to building a cultural institution and building equity within that space. So this operational shift is central. And this is why unionization of cultural spaces has been really important, because you see that people are recognizing that they, don't, they need to have certain things in their work life in order for it to be equitable, for it to be fair, for it to actually have the for it to go beyond just being a place of employment, uh, but also a place that reflects how they want to live in the world, how they want to interact with culture, and in fact, how culture is produced. So this is how, this is how I'm seeing this kind of shift, is not only through the what is seen and shown, it's wonderful that there is more diversity in terms of 
who gets their art shown within cultural space, but how that those exhibitions are produced and by whom is equally important. Slowing down. Now, slowing down is probably the biggest learning that comes out of my book, and I'll be talking about that in greater depth in, another, in another one of my podcasts, but slowing down, to give you a glimpse, is about thinking through who's at the table, thinking through who is making those choices, and are there enough stakeholders who have different points of view and different life experiences that are talking about the, the, what the decision is to be made to actually make a decision that takes into consideration more than just the life experience of one particular person. I know that capitalism makes us think that you know we've got to be productive, we've got to move quickly, we've got to make executive decisions, but the reality is an executive decision is a cop-out, and I would rather take more time to make sure that I have a diversity of life experience around the table at which the decision is being made and make sure it's a better decision. It's not always gonna be the right choice, but it's gonna be better. And I think that's what we need to be aiming for here, is improving our processes of thinking and working together. So the final learning that I really wanna talk about deeply in this podcast um, is about the necessity of rebalancing public and private support for cultural institutions. This is a place where a real rebalancing of equity can take place in a very pro some very profound ways. So the reality of cultural institutions in the United States today is that the vast majority of funding comes from private sources. So individuals, private philanthropies, corporations. In fact, less than 25% typically comes from public sources, meaning state, local, federal government monies do not exceed about 25% for any cultural institutions. And what does that mean? Well, if we think about what it means to run any kind of project, you want to have a diversity of sources of funds. And why is that? Well, because number one, it gives you a chance to get monies from many, many different types of people. And number two, it gives you the greatest flexibility and freedom to use that money because you don't have one person that you're particularly beholden to or one class of person that you're particularly beholden to in the case of culture in the United States. And so, you know, there are a number of examples, including the Sackler family, including Warren Kanders and his uh, influence at the Whitney Museum as a vice chair that I talk about extensively in the book, and we'll get into some of that today. But just hold that idea of a certain type of patron or a specific patron in particular having an outsized influence over what culture institutions do and how they do it. So if our focus for today rests on this last learning, rebalancing the sources of funds for culture, um, we can really think about civic engagement as the goal, right? Culture as a space, cultural space as a space where, where we engage in the ideas about what our society is, what we do, what is culture. And I talk about, in Culture Strike, I talk about um, how these undiversified sources of funds might really influence, unduly influence cultural spaces, not only in what is programmed, but also how the institution itself is run, the way that boards are structured, the way that fundraising happens. And so I want to add to this 
kind of discussion, a kind of uh, another facet, which is that private funding is notoriously fickle and unreliable. It is, it requires institutions to navigate a really opaque set of power dynamics and relationships that oftentimes um, are extremely strange and precarious. And, um, you know, and if we think about the Sacklers more specifically, the Sacklers family is a huge extended family in the United States whose wealth comes from, in large part, the selling of opioids. Um, it's a pharmaceutical family that has invested an enormous money in marketing and selling opioids, um, including oxycodone, which is the source of the massive, massive public health crisis that we have in the United States. And so the question becomes, if you think about the Sacklers, is like to have their names writ large on many museums and gallery spaces as significant donors. The Sackler Gallery in Washington, D.C., uh, the, the Sackler Galleries at the Met, the, um, the Louvre, the National Portrait Gallery, all of these spaces internationally have affiliation with the Sacklers as enormously generous to the cultural sector. However, what does that mean? What does that, what does that mean in material reality? That means that um, essentially you have a family that's making money, that has made billions off of the opioid industry being patted on the back for their generosity to culture. That creates a conflict. And how does that conflict play out? Well, there's a really interesting story about Nan Golden, an important contemporary photographer, who essentially said, enough with the opioid sponsorships. This is not OK. She was an, she was an oxycodone addict herself. She nearly died. And so she took this position that she would not allow her work to be shown in institutions where Sackler was a major sponsor. So what it came down to was that she, um, she was meant to have a major exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in London. And basically she said, until you take the Sackler name down from the galleries, I will not have this exhibition. And that was the first um, kind of brick to fall out of the wall. Subsequently, the Louvre removed their name, the Met has removed their name. There were many, many protests that led to this. It was not an easy struggle. But the point is that, and obviously the Sacklers aren't the only bad actors in these kinds of um, scenarios, um, but just an example of one. Um, so it's clear that if you have, as a cultural institution, the aim of fostering a free and open society where we can actually engage in cultural production, you can't have people funding it who are creating a national public health, an international public health crisis. That just, those are at odds with each other, right? Fundamentally. So, unsavory entanglements are a problem. <laughs> Um, and in the United States, in spite of the unprecedented accumulation of wealth over these last decades, uh, consolidation of wealth uh, and accumulation of wealth, cultural spaces are increasingly precarious. They are increasingly reliant on fewer and fewer dollars. And so the public sphere needs to take a role. And why, why do we have to take a role? Well, because these are our spaces. 
they're the spaces where, where, where we can interact and where we can make culture happen. So what is the most difficult aspect of cultural production to fund? And I would say that having run a museum, the thing that nobody wants to give money for is paying for cultural infrastructure. That's heat, light, power, living wages for employees, health insurance, these kinds of basic, basic things without which you cannot run an institution. And you know, when I was the director of the Queen's Museum, I always talked about it as, as the museum being nothing without its people. The museum is just a building. Yes, it may have precious art objects in its collections. However, without somebody to open the door, without somebody to turn on the lights, without somebody to clean up the bathrooms, there's no such thing as that space. It's activated by humans. And so that is part of the infrastructure of cultural space, of any space. But since we're talking about cultural counterpower here, that's what I'm going to address. So what I would argue is that federal funds are necessary to support cultural infrastructure. And this is fundamental not only to um, to ensure cultural equity across the United States, but also to provide a counterweight to the private interests and resources that are so embedded in these systems. In the wake of the 80s and 90s culture wars, which basically put the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the only federal organization that gives money um, specifically to cultural institutions, um, Basically, the NEA has been persecuted ever since these culture wars broke out. And what did they break out about? Well, basically, what art was being shown and what art was being given federal funding. And this happened because there were conceptual artists and, uh, and others who were making work that some people deemed offensive. Among these, uh, the infamous Andres Serrano Piss Christ, which is a beautiful photograph of a crucifix embedded in a, a jar of the artist's piss. So, you know, this was deemed, um, you know, highly objectionable by, uh, by certain members of Congress. There was a huge fight about it. The NEA budgets were slashed. Ever since then, the NEA has been a punching bag for right-wing conservatives um, and has been an excuse to basically completely defund or largely defund culture on a federal level. And let me just remind everyone that the United States is one of the very few countries in the world that doesn't have a national cultural ministry um, that just doesn't exist here in the United States. And so my contention is that rather than funding the art that goes into the cultural space, we should be funding the cultural infrastructure that allows culture to be organized. So what does that mean? Again, heat, light, power, employees, their health insurance. Let's take care of the things that support the making of culture. So if we fund cultural infrastructure from the federal level, then we can allow the discussions to be had of what is within those spaces on a hyper-local level. That should be negotiated locally. That is part of the democratic process. Amongst communities themselves in democratic ways, those, those community standards can be negotiated. That's not for the federal government to impose. The federal government should be creating space where culture can happen locally throughout the United States. And there's only one way to do that which is to fund it federally. 
So my friend and colleague uh, and co-conspirator here at the Francis Kite Club, Laura Hanna, and I have recently written a New York Times op-ed on this very subject. And in it, we suggest that if we make a compelling case for funding cultural infrastructure at this national level, we could look beyond the beleaguered NEA and we should make the case, a strong, strong case, that culture should be considered alongside other forms of infrastructures, just like broadband, just like roads, just like clean water. Everyone in the United States needs culture and produces culture for that matter. And instead, culture is usually recognized as some kind of special add-on icing on the cake rather than something that is like fundamental to life, which is something that we would like to argue for. All humans need culture. All humans produce culture. It's part of living. So that's the argument that we make. And if you think about it that way, you can think about cultural infrastructure as a thing that should be funded on a national level that, sorry, I'm repeating myself here. So if we recognize culture as needing to be recognized in the same ways that building roads or having clean water or uh, access to broadband is considered, then we find ourselves with an opportunity. And the opportunity is to think about funding culture through the massive multi-year infrastructure bills that are proposed to Congress about every five years. The last one, which uh, was approved several years ago, um, was a five-year, $1.2 trillion bill that funds everything from, uh, from roads to uh, broadband. It does not include culture, but if we imagine just 1% of that funding going to culture, you would have $1.2 billion a year that could be used to fund cultural infrastructure across the United States. And this is not just talking about the big shiny museums in Los Angeles and New York. This, we're talking here about the tiny cultural centers, the film centers, the um, and, and even potentially for-profit spaces um, that are producing culture or that are creating space for culture to exist and to be created. So, What's interesting about that number is that that is about five times, five times what the NEA gives away per year. They give about, away about $280 million a year. Um, so $1.2 billion is a lot more than that. So imagine if culture was included in this massive cultural infrastructure bill, $1.2 trillion that's allocated from the federal government to fund everything from broadband and road building to clean water and air. Currently, culture is not included in that plan. It's considered something special. Included in the plan, included in cultural infrastructure, because what would happen then? Even if you took one half of 1% of that cultural infrastructure bill, it would allocate $1.2 billion a year to culture across the United States. And not just to the big, shiny cultural institutions like the Met and in New York and the Los Angeles County Museum in, in, in LA, but all of the small cultural centers and spaces for 
cultural production all across the United States, whether they're small theaters or um, or honky tonks or um, you know um, or 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 small uh, small film programs. You know, these are spaces that we rely on as places to go, socialize, to make, to expand our minds and our visions and open our imaginations, broaden our imaginations about life, what life can be, how we think about the world that's around us. I mean, my definition of great art is when I see something that's really fantastic, it changes the way that I see the world around me. And so those are the kinds of encounters that culture enables in this expanding of the imagination. And if $1.2 billion were allocated, it would be five times as mon much money as the NEA gives away each year. That would be really transformative in the cultural sector. It would begin, begin to rebalance the funds that the private sector gives. It would begin to rebalance towards a more equitable, kind of seesaw, if you imagine, between what the public, what we, the public, all of us, are putting into culture across the nation, as opposed to the very narrow, wealthiest people and corporations that are able to fund culture today. So that rebalancing can do a lot. It can do a lot towards the kind of larger equitable piece, but it also will begin to soften the edges around what kind of art might be produced. It, it doesn't just have to be a, a, a type of culture that is um, successful in the marketplace. It doesn't have to be a certain type of artwork. It can come from a broader swath of cultural production. It can also fuel a different mode of storytelling. And this is, this is very important, going back to the kind of media angle that I was talking about before. The narrowing of contemporary media means that only certain stories get told, and they're only told in a very specific way. And so as we brought in these imaginations around how culture is made bigger, by adding public funding to the mix, by having it not be so tied to private interests, we end up with a situation where Artists, cultural producers don't ha don't feel like they have to toe the line of a particular set of ideologies, right? And when that happens, we automatically open the imagination not only of those artists and cultural producers, but of the people who are absorbing, or witnessing, or experiencing those artworks. So, what I want to say is that transformation in this kind of de-strangling cultural production in the United States by actually providing some cultural infrastructure is the minimum of what we can do to re-enliven civic society, to re-enliven the, conversation the conversations that might be had, to begin to carve out the, the, the silos that people have around what their media intake is, and to begin to actually re-democratize what culture is and also how we discuss and engage with one another. It's in this reimagining that I think culture can play a huge, huge role, but it has to not be strangled by fiscal concerns. It has to not be strangled by the kind of uh, monopoly that private interests currently have on what culture is produced and how. So this is just the beginning of the conversation. 
I know cultural infrastructure may not be the sexiest part of what we might talk about in the coming months, but it is an important place to start because it helps us understand perhaps how we might open our minds to what culture is beyond what we've been told that it is. And it also helps us think about the relationships, the power relationships that produce culture as we currently imagine it, and that prescribe the type of storytelling that exists in both our media landscape and in our, um, and in our discussions about what culture could be. So I invite you along for the journey. Hang out with me again, and I'll see you soon.